0: Texas talking, you What was that that you said? Texas talking, ah. Gonna hoop up your head. Texas talking.
1: Tell me, who can you trust when Texas goes on? Texas goes Texas, Texas talking.
2: Hello, and welcome to the Tribcast. This is Elizabeth Crook, author of the novel Monday Monday. I'm about to turn you over to your host, the highly respected Reeve Hamilton, Will be joined by three others, one of whom is my good friend Evan Smith. I realize I could use this opportunity to mock Evan publicly, as others of his friends have done on this show, but I'm not going to. I respect him too much. He's the person I listen to when I want to understand some complicated political situation in Texas. And now you'll get to spend the next half hour with him and the others. Sit back, enjoy.
0: Thank you. This is reporter Reeve Hamilton here with the Tribcast for the fourth week of July. I am joined by CEO and Editor-in-Chief and wise counsel, Evan Smith.
2: FOE, friend of Elizabeth.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Executive editor, Ross Ramsey. I think that intro would have been better if she'd read it with a more ironic voice. Yeah. Well, no, it was obviously ca- sarcastic.
1: Oh, really? It was obviously Clearly yeah. sarcastic.
0: And Good. reporter Morgan Smith is also here.
3: Hello. I'm one of the others.
2: <laughs> she is.
3: <laughs> Said
2: not sarcastically.
0: <laughs> yeah. She often marches in front of the office with a sign. One of the others. Um, Let's continue. (laughs) What are we talking about? National Guard? No idea. Let's start with the National Guard. That's some of the big news of the past week. So the
1: governor is going to send a thousand National Guard troops to the Texas border, ostensibly for border security, although they don't have any police power or or have very, very limited police power here. On top of the... um, People we've dispatched earlier, that the state dispatched earlier, the one point three million per week that the House and Senate and Governor agreed to spend on the Department of Public Safety. This is all kind of shaped around the forty to fifty-five thousand migrant children, mostly from Central America, who've suddenly, sort of suddenly, massed on the on the border. Uh, it's you know the overlay here is a battle between the the Feds and the state over whose responsibility this is, why it happened. There's a lot of Finger pointing going on, and it's hard in this one to separate politics from policy.
2: Well, i say I don't know that we we can talk just about the politics of it alone because they're intermingled. But I'm much more interested in the politics of this from Perry's oh, surprise. perspective. Surprise, surprise!
0: <laughs> yeah. But, uh, what do you think? Do you think this is a good political play for Perry?
2: Well, the first question I have is: Did Perry get out in front of a parade that was marching past his office, or did he start the? parade himself, right? So we had, prior to this, a few days earlier, there were a group of members of the legislature, more conservative group that often writes letters and asks for things even if they don't think they're necessarily going to get them, right? But the kind of people who say, you know, we think that we ought to be doing X. And so there was a group of them. Krauss was part of it and a couple of the others. Stickland, some of those guys um, who asked for this to happen. Now, were they reflecting what was already being discussed or did Perry essentially take the baton and, and, and lead the parade. That, that's what I'm, I'm wondering.
1: I think he kind of started it. You know, this began a couple of weeks ago when Obama was coming down here for some fundraisers and offered the governor, you know, the usual chance to say hi on the tarmac. And the governor said, no, I'd really actually like a meeting and we need to talk about this. And this is so the state first puts the DPS in. Then Perry and Obama have this exchange. It results in a meeting. Perry gives the president basically a list of four things that he wanted the federal government to do. Uh, the president sort of jujitsu it and said, uh, I think those are all four really good ideas, but um, you need to tell the Republicans in Congress to give us the $3.7 billion we think yeah. these four things would require. Uh, Perry came back with, you know, I still think the federal government ought to take care of this. I think the federal government should reimburse the state for what he says is $500 million in costs already incurred for federal responsibilities. And in the meantime, uh, we're going to pop in with this national guard thing, and, and also demand that the federal government pay for that.
0: And this is going to cost us up to twelve to seventeen million bucks a month. a month. Right. So what if the federal government doesn't reimburse us for that? Well, we're out twelve to 15, seventeen million
1: dollars and, a month.
3: And what is the likelihood of the federal government picking up that tab?
1: <laughs> There's been some conversation about that. The federal government's already talking. Um, about picking up some of these costs. A lot of this is locked up in Congress. Congress has been trying to do immigration reform. They have all kinds of different ideas about it, but they've been locked up about immigration reform for at least two years. And In fact, the conversation between Perry and the White House has been going on since at least 2012. Perry wrote a letter saying that we needed needed more support on the border, that there was going to be this influx of people which is now
2: materialized. The difficulty is that if we if the federal government pays for this then other people are going to step up and say well we're in you know incurring costs associated with this issue that we would like the white house or the federal government to pay for as well and at a certain point the white house can't say yes to everybody and so it's easier for them to say yes to nobody right um, but if they're
0: going but, to say yes to somebody we'd like it to be us
2: well we'd like it to be us but you can understand why from the Political end of this again, coming back to that, it's a no loose proposition for Perry to demand this of the White House because he looks tough, right? And the disposition of the state toward the White House is not terribly favorable anyway. So when the White House invariably says no, this is just suspicions confirmed. They well, hate us, and, yeah. and we're, it's we're also a bill that
0: it's also a bill that he's not going to get stuck with because he will be long gone.
1: Right?
2: No, Perry. He Perry. Yeah. Well, look, I, one question that occurred to me in the course of all this is, if if ever there was a day for the rainy day fund to be spent on something this is it, right? I mean, in terms of a one-time emergency or, a, or an excuse to take money out of the rainy day fund at a time when the oil and gas economy of the state is replenishing those funds as quickly as we can spend them, why not just dip into that? I mean, to your question of where's the money going to come they, from? They this, may in the absence do that. of the federal government, you can't you'd think it. the rainy day fund would be, you'd have to bring the, the House whole, and Senate back in, Yeah, the whole legislature and you need it, you'd need it. a vote of two-thirds in the case of, of both to, to, to vote for it, um, to, to spend it. But Look, I think the politics of this for Perry are very favorable. You know, it's become a cliche almost at this point a couple weeks into this crisis to say that Perry's um, profile and his brand have have been improved by his conduct during this. Part of it is Perry and part of it is the circumstances. Well, part of it is, you know. Right. But but inevitably the fact is Perry looks a lot better and more statesmanlike. Whether you agree or disagree with the particulars of what he's done a month into this, he looks much better today than he did a month ago.
1: The national political class is starting to notice what, you know, the people in Texas, the Texas political class, noticed a while back. This yeah. guy's retooling for another run. It, you know, it's suddenly, you know, the guy everybody's talking about, um, you know, outside of Texas, the all the all the big publications, a lot of the – he yeah. made a trip to Iowa. All those people are talking favorably about him who 15 minutes ago could only remember, oops, um, you know, he's starting his rebranding.
2: Right. Of course, that happened the last time as well. So he had been – very favorably disposed, and then he got outside his comfort zone in the last campaign and then all went away. And the question is, can he run an entire presidential campaign on the strength of this issue? He's going to have to talk about other issues. He's going to have to demonstrate that his political chops are choppier than they were or less choppy. But
0: this issue is uh, sort of the issue that brought him down to some extent in the last presidential campaign. I mean, he had his blunders and gaffes and whatnot, but it seems like his polling really started to tank after uh, he got criticized for allowing immigrants to have in-state tuition for college and saying that if you didn't support that policy, you did, maybe you didn't have a heart.
2: Well, right. so- somebody, Jay Root or somebody else, ought to. It's one of these opportunities with Perry. Ask him whether he continues to believe that we should have in-state tuition because he may be the only... Well, you know, the legislature didn't... He may be the only consequential statewide elected official, right. current well, or future, who believes that in-state tuition should remain the law of Texas.
1: I'm not sure he does, but the last legislature did not send him a bill repealing it. And, you know, the sort of the... Well, quiet, think, talk, quiet talk over there was that, you know, his office asked them not to send a bill. So what do you think the odds question, are that right?
2: the legislature will send the next governor, whoever that next governor is, a bill repealing it? I think they're pretty – Well, odd, I think right. the last legislature wanted to. I think this legislature, I think right. though, I think the odds are extremely high that they'll send I such a bill over.
0: The Senate leadership, depending on who wins, could very well be quite primed to well, send and, him and the Senate
1: that Well, majo- and the Senate majority, regardless of who wins the lieutenant governor's job, is going to be – primed in that direction.
2: you know. And, and if you remember, and Morgan at that time was covering the lieutenant governor's mm-hmm. race, during the lieutenant governor's primary, there was a conflation of admission and tuition in the discussion of this issue. Every time in-state tuition would come up, the response was, well, we shouldn't be giving away slots at the University of Texas or Texas A&M to kids who are the children of undocumented people. Well, that's not the question you were right. asked. The question is, should you be offering in-state tuition rates to these folks? And I hope that we all will. And I know, I know we all will stick to that question when the time comes, because it is one of the issues that, you know, when, when people talk about how the Republican Party says it wants to do right by the Latino community and attract Latino voters, and yet the messaging and the actions that are taken by some Republicans seem to run counter to that. This is an issue on which a lot of people are... Are, are mad that the Republicans want to overturn what has been the state's law for the last 13 years. And I think it's, it's an open question what will happen. But I'm telling you, Ross, I think that the next legislature is going to act on this.
0: Although and, for and for many students, tuition, I mean, it's not... A, tuition can be the difference between enrolling and not enrolling. I guess it's not, the, it's not the same thing as admission. But if tuition is... If you have to pay out-of-state tuition, then you might not go.
2: R- right. But again, you'll remember, this board, right. the, the, the answers were something along the lines of you're giving away admissions slots, right. which is well.
1: There's also different. there's yeah. a there's a faction in the you know there's a faction in the electorate that um, doesn't think you ought to be admitted to these universities at any price if you're not legally here.
2: And uh, well, that's a slippery slope.
1: <laughs> well, that's not the first time the Texas Legislature has been on a slippery slope. I well, mean, that, that, yeah, that know.
0: would be the next issue. Once you get rid of this issue, that becomes the next issue, right? right? You saw even um, even David Simpson this week, who I think is. Uh, nobody's idea of a centrist was getting heat from the right at his local community for being too compassionate to the, uh, wanting to be too compassionate to the immigrant children coming in on the border just now. So, I mean, there's still room on the right to this is be at this be. I stuff. still
1: think, you know, I've said this before, I still think this is going to be a picture problem. I think you're going to get to the point where you've got a crowd of little kids. It's not like these are you know, thirty-year-old guys coming over here to work construction jobs. You're going to get a crowd of little kids. It's going to be a compassion thing. They're going to be bishops and Baptist preachers, and you know, the going charitable and is religious going community around <laughs> it. And it's going to—it's not going to have the aspect of an illegal invasion. It's going to have the aspect of—and you're already seeing the word "fight" here. Is this a humanitarian crisis or is this border security? But I'm
3: just—I'm just wondering. I mean, when is that? When are those images going to start coming out? When are we going to see? The kids, not when are we going to be able to see them as kids, as not you know the crim- the hardened criminals that g- are described often in some of the rhetoric, you know, during campaign season, certainly during the lieutenant governor primary. Well, and you saw
0: at the press conference where they announced the national guard deployment. Uh, David Dewhurst, the lieutenant governor, made a big point of you know when, people when, keep- when, when
2: he got there, <laughs>
0: <laughs> and he made a big thing about saying that. People keep saying this is about kids. It's not just kids. You know, there's other issues going on here that we need this stuff, which sort of I think they seem to be wanting to make that distinction of obviously this is a border security issue, not the humanitarian uh, solution, this National Guard thing. You've
1: got all these sheriffs and police chiefs down there saying, you know, nobody dialed 911 down here. The crime rate hadn't – the crime rate's bad. We've got We've got crime coming over the border some. But – we don't have a surge in crime. we have a surge in kids, and it's a it's a different thing. You've also got you know this is a minor thing. I think it'll become a major thing. Um, the economic development people along the border are starting to holler at these guys and say, you know you're making it impossible for a business to um, conscionably relocate to
0: McAllen or Edinburgh or to Hidalgo.
1: You're making it sound like a danger zone.
0: Well, we talked about the Senate makeup and leadership a little bit ago so maybe we could transition into the changes there if anyone has any thoughts about how jane nelson will do as chair of finance
2: uh, dan patrick had indicated during the primary that if he were elected lieutenant governor he'd make jane nelson the chair of finance first woman to head the finance committee in the senate um, that's sort Williams, of amazing
1: isn't it? stop there for a second that's sort of amazing
2: maybe what's amazing is that it's not amazing I
1: guess it's, you know,
0: <laughs> but maybe it's amazing how unamazing it was.
2: Let me put the bong down and continue.
0: <laughs> uh,
2: so, so uh, Governor Dewhurst, confronted with the absence of a finance chair since the departure of Tommy Williams, you know, I suppose there are two ways you could look at it. One is that since he knows he's not going to be lieutenant governor. He ought to be deferential to the guy who is going to be or the woman who is going to be and not make an appointment. But the business of the state has to continue in the interim. We all know that while the 140 days is really important, the non-140 days every two years, a lot of stuff gets done. And there is business of the state that needs to get conducted through these committees. And so not having a finance chair or not having a state affairs chair with the departure of Robert Duncan to the Texas Tech Chancellor's office, this matters. So – The lieutenant governor, whether he had the idea on his own or he essentially agreed with Patrick or he is acceding to Patrick's wishes, appointed Nelson finance chair. Um, He appointed uh, Charles Charles Schwartner Schwartner from Georgetown, who is a medical doctor, to succeed Nelson in health and human services. He appointed Craig Estes from Wichita Falls to be the chair of state affairs. And he appointed Kevin Eltife. Uh, from Tyler to succeed John Corona, who was defeated in the primary as chair of business and commerce, correct?
1: Right, and he also put Eltife uh, on the LBB and
2: Estes. Right.
1: So, so if and he if, made
2: and he made appointments to the finance committee to replace the people who either had been defeated or had departed.
1: Yeah, I see. You don't need to do that. I mean, you can you can argue that you know they, he had to do something on the LBB because he actually had two members absented from the gone from the right. Senate and. You know why give all the votes to the House, right? The House had some lame ducks on there, but they were there. So, but he shuffled the he shuffled the deck. It's kind of interesting. And the Kremlin,
2: and the criminology of it now is going to be how much of what was appointed, how much of the folks who were appointed by Dewhurst are people who Patrick approves of, and would be, you know, presumably he still approves of Nelson as the chair of finance. But if Patrick comes in as lieutenant governor, would Patrick have different selections? And so would these people essentially be kind of leave your car running at the curb appointments, or these people? Yeah, how excited should they be?
1: Well, I think you know if you let's just you know pick on one. If you were Kevin Eltife, um, don't get you're, comfortable. You're, you're, <laughs> well, your chance your chances of getting named if Dan Patrick wins this thing, your chances of getting named to that position were probably pretty small. And, and, and your why, chances why is that? Because boy is well, that
2: boy is a Democrat. That's why. I mean, you know what the issue is here. That you know. the, these days, Kevin Eltife is 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 viewed by many Republicans as not. Sufficiently conservative. It's, mis- it's mystifying wing, right. to a lot of people to look at Kevin Eltife, the former mayor of Tyler, who on the issues technically lines is up— is not a Democrat. Who lines up <clears throat> 85 90% probably with the— with the party, with the most conservative elements in every issue, is, is pilloried for not being 100 percent with them. So,
3: But now, but, I mean, I guess it's a direct slight now if Patrick ends up replacing someone like Altaif with one of his own choices. Right. So it's,
1: but, but if you're yeah. Altaif, you know, the chances of getting named to this were probably close to zero. Now the chances maybe have risen to maybe 5% or 6%. <laughs> it's better. No, you, have be- you have I mean, a better ch- – always as yeah, an
2: incumbent committee chair, you have a likely, likelier he's, chance – He's got to
1: scoot you out of the
2: thing. You know, Estes is probably you – know, of the group that was just appointed chairs, Estes is probably second – from the bottom in terms of stability. Uh, I think that Nelson is a, is a lock to continue, and Schwertner is probably a pretty solid choice. <laughs> I mean, Schwartner be... was
1: one of the first people in the Senate to endorse Patrick over Dewhurst. So yeah, I think he's right. probably pretty safe. And again, yeah. he's
2: a doctor, so he has a, there's a narrative behind his appointment that makes sense. Right. You it, know, would,
0: it would probably be more amazing if one of the first things Patrick did was remove the first female <laughs> finance chair. Well, but, he's
1: the one who picked her. I mean, it, it would, you know, there'd be a lot of explaining to do, you know, on a bunch of fronts, but the main one would be the first person who publicly I mean, put Jane Nelson's name in the hopper. He was issuing press
3: releases criticizing Dewhurst right. for Prior not naming, primary, right, right yeah. for not naming a finance chair, and saying that hey, Jane Nelson would have been a, would be a great choice. So do you so. think if
0: only he had done this earlier, that uh, Dewhurst would have won the primary? Is that what you're saying?
2: Yes,
3: that's <laughs>
2: exactly. <right. laughs> yeah. um, I'm going to do
0: what my opponent <laughs> says, and that's how I'm going to win
1: the primary. There's, you know, right.
2: there's still a lot to be done on the committee front. For one thing, you know, the current chair of public education, a certain Dan Patrick. Would like not to have that job next time. That's right, uh, and it's likely not to have it, regardless of the outcome of the election. Well, he's
1: either not a senator or not. Or, and so or there will be actually, a new chair yeah. of
2: education, and the likelihood of of there being fewer committees next time than there were this time. Also, you mean if they this, roll higher ed into public, ed. well, you could combine public and higher ed. You know, I think that and it uh, becomes ed. You know, Just right. ed. There, like there's a ed, there's sorry. a general there's a general feeling that there are too many committees and too many committee assignments and so senators are constantly having to to take themselves out of committee hearings over here to attend committee hearings over there and you know is a frustration level with them being unable to do all the things that they're being asked to do and one potential solution maybe one of many is to reduce the number of committees
1: well new lieutenant governors always almost yeah. always reduce the number of committees cut it you know, trim it back.
2: And as a practical matter, you know, the only person other than Kevin Altife who is viewed with as much suspicion in the Senate is Kel Seliger, who's the current chair of higher education, a committee that has seen no sh- small share of controversy over the last couple of years. And so if the education committees were combined, it would solve the problem of the conservative elements of the party perhaps wanting to bust Seliger as chair. Uh, and it also puts higher ed and public ed together, which solves another another problem. Um You know, I I think what remains to be seen as well, and it came up during the primary, is whether Patrick follows through on his intention to appoint fewer Democratic chairs. Uh, Probably not zero, but certainly not as many as had been the case before. And, you know, there are a couple of Democrats who are likelier to have chairs than others. I think if you're John Whitmire or you're Eddie Lucio, your chances of having a committee chair in the next session are greater than, say, Judith Zaffirini.
3: Letitia Vandepute. Or Letitia <laughs> Yeah, what if Letitia Vandepute pulls
0: a rabbit out of her hat and becomes a uh, lieutenant governor? Does Jane Nelson get to stick around in finance Well, them? that's
1: interesting. I mean, you know, you would, you would assume that Democrats do better in that um, scenario, that the further right you are, the less well you do, uh, that the appeal would be, you know, this doesn't matter where you are relative to the other Republicans, which seems to be the current rating system. But where you are relative to the middle of the state, you know, and and people that are closer to the middle or closer to the left are going to be on Vandepus list, and the what, others. Are once not. upon
2: a time, Jane Nelson passed was what passed for a centrist in the in the Senate, right?
1: Well, not really. I mean, Jane I mean, Nelson, come on. Jane Nelson when she came in was the far was the definition of the far right. But
2: the point is where Jane Nelson is today. Maybe, maybe I said it wrong that. That J- Jane Nelson wrong. is not one of the more conservative. You know, uh, uh, she's not like a, a out on the edge. She's pretty conservative. She's not. She's not <laughs> hold 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 on hold on. Is no, on Jane Nel- Jones, is Jane on Nelson Mark, Donna uh, Campbell? On, uh, is no, Jane Nelson but, Charles but, Schwartz?
1: on the Mark Jones rating system? <laughs> Obviously not. Republicans in the Senate. I think she's number seven
2: out of nineteen. Okay. <laughs> well I guess the point well, I was not, gonna make not Donna Campbell, the point I was chair. gonna make is is that if you're Leticia Van Deputy and you're looking was, at the Republican committee I, chairs. I just want
1: Senator Nelson to know that was Evans' voice.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I think we're fine. The chair and I I think are fine. But my, my point on this was that if you're Van and you do win this election you're looking at Jane Nelson as finance chair. Probably you're not going to have a Republican finance chair. But if you're looking at Republicans who you might appoint as chairs—
0: And you think, there's old centrist, Jane Nelson. <laughs> right.
2: <laughs> I think if we call Jane Nelson the centrist, I don't think there's any risk I to Jane I think, you Nelson. know, it would, the Senate would be
1: really interesting to watch just from an outside perspective if Van Vanderpute won because everybody's been playing for a long time to, you know, get in favor with whoever the winning Republican was going to be. They've all sort of— hedged their bets toward Patrick and now everybody's out of position.
2: So. Everybody's given up the thought that there that there might be a different outcome to this election. Right. Right. So no one is really preparing for a contingency,
1: which is why an upset would be, you know, in some ways kind of delicious just for just for laughs.
0: Speaking of delicious, Morgan's been <laughs> observing the State Board of Education.
2: <laughs> you, you understand I, that, that did not work at all. Oh, Jimmy I, Fallon's, I yeah. think it did.
0: I think everyone out there knows what I'm talking about.
2: Uh, but can we talk you, about this I mean, weird. Okay, you keep thinking that. Can
0: we, can we talk about this charter school issue specifically? Uh, sure. Where the State Board denied a charter school access to the state, and then they're getting it.
3: That's right. a very
0: effective body.
3: <laughs> so this is the first round of charter school application approvals after the passage of a big law that revamped a lot of aspects of charter school policy. But this was a main one that it transferred a lot, most of the authority from the state board to the commissioner of education. And that's a significant change because the commissioner is appointed by the governor. The state board is an elected body. Um, but the one kind of thing that they did get to keep was that they get to veto the charter applications that the commissioner approves. They approved all. They approved four out of five. The one that they did not approve, that they vetoed, then came back around and was able to use a quirk in state law because they had already gotten a contract approved in the state. They they applied instead for an expansion under that contract, which is that falls under the commissioner's authority. So the commissioner was basically able to just do an end run around that veto. And um,
0: was that intentional on their part? Where they like, well, if we get this approval, then we can do this. If the state board does that, was that like just sort of brilliant? I mean, I think that game I think
3: that that definitely. I think that in during the application process, when it became apparent that state board members were having a lot of critical questions about this one charter school that I think they began to look at, you know, what are our options if we do indeed get vetoed. And um, and I think, you know, I think the veto was a surprise, but I definitely think that there was strategizing going on. And, and the commissioner, when he addressed the state board about this last week, he he alluded to, to that, um, that he said, He basically said, you know what, it should be no surprise that I made this decision. I thought this was a strong school. You know, it's the legislative intent to encourage high-performing out-of-state charter schools to come to the state. And I was going to use whatever power I had to to allow that to happen. So, um, but yeah, the question of legislative intent is... Is an interesting one because it was also the legislature's intent to allow the state board of education to have some voice in this process.
1: Who found the loophole?
3: Um, I believe it was it was a combination of I think the charter school, um, the charter school attorneys, and working working with TEA attorneys. And because there's no question that the commissioner had the authority to do this, it's just was this something that. The legislature intended when when they passed this law, allowing the SBOE to to veto charters in the state. And
0: what were the objections to the charter school?
3: Basically, it this is um, <clears throat> it's one of two or three really high performing charter schools that um, are based in Arizona that have they've had a great academic outcomes, but they for whatever reason, have do not serve diverse student bodies. They have you a know, very low percentage of economically disadvantaged students, and um, they serve mostly white students. And so there was a lot of concern that bringing them to Texas would not be, and especially bringing them to San Antonio and Dallas, um, would not best serve the students there. And there's also a question about, you know, what are their priorities? Are they Um, You know, are they adequately committed to serving economically disadvantaged students or do they just get really good outcomes because they're able to get students that don't have as many challenges educationally?
0: Just because they serve mostly white students elsewhere, mostly, you know, affluent students, does that mean necessarily that that's who they would serve here?
3: No, it doesn't. It's just there are questions about do they have certain policies in place like having fees for extracurricular activities, not providing transportation to their campuses, um, having pricier meal, not having free and reduced lunch plans, um, that kind of thing that might discourage uh, economically disadvantaged kids from attending.
0: Anything else thrilling come out of the SBOE shindig?
3: Well, um, another... Another policy change around charter schools is that um, they approved um, an out- they approved the use of donations from nonprofits to fund State Board of Education members to visit these charter schools out of state. So basically a private entity is – now private entities are now going to be allowed to, to donate money to allow state policymakers to travel out of state. So we, we
2: think this is a good thing or a bad thing?
3: I mean, from I think the argument in favor is that, well, this is great. You know, State Board of Education members can be more informed about the decisions they're making about these schools. I think the other side is I mean, there are ethical concerns on the other side because, OK, we're basically allowing a uh, you know, using non-public funds to pay for state. I mean, is this a lobbying exp- trip? Are these basically lobbying trips where, well, since the board members are going on junkets in order to to get, to curry their favor for these charter schools? Well, so since the schools? nonprofits
1: don't have to say where their money came from, it's it's feasible. It's not we we don't know, but it's feasible that a charter school that wanted a Texas contract could pay. Could fund a nonprofit to fly people around to see how beneficial that charter school is right
3: right i mean it's I think that the the transparency side of it has to be handled very carefully in order for this to to avoid even just perception wise those kinds of concerns so um, that'll be something to watch
0: well speaking of uh, I don't know if it's transparency or not, but uh, Michael Quinn Sullivan. A uh, conservative activist just got hit with a ten thousand dollar fine for failing to register as a lobbyist in Texas. Right. What is the significance of this?
2: He, he would say, and his lawyers will say, not a single dollar will ever be paid. Well, right. this
0: is the highest fine
1: that the Texas Ethics Commission can levy on this, and they basically said, you know, you're lobbying. Lobbyists have to register. You're not registered. Pay a fine. And he's trying to position him. He's, you know, he's made the argument, and his lawyers have made the argument. That he's not a lobbyist, he's a reporter, right, that he's a journalist, and that um, they're not lobbying legislators because they're telling them how they're going to rate them on scorecards and not telling them how to vote on particular issues, although they are saying this particular issue is going to be a scorecard issue for us, vote, how, vote however you'd like. You know,
3: specific votes that and are often on votes. Yeah, the um, scorecard.
1: So I think the Ethics Commission, You know, at this point, the Ethics Commission looked at this and said, you know... We've looked at this. This is lobbying. Either register or pay a fine. If you're not going to register or pay a fine. Now, what happens next, and, and this is actually where everybody thought this was going to go, what happens next is this goes to court. None of the stuff that the Ethics Commission heard or saw necessarily is part of the court case. It's a trial de novo. It's a fresh slate. One of the reasons that um, was given for... Um, Sullivan not testifying before the ethics commission was that if this goes to court you don't have pre-existing sworn testimony you don't have you know perjury problems or things like that so i you know i expect we're going to see this all over again you know the question in the lobby is you know so do we have to register <laughs> uh the question for other organizations like Sullivans is do we register or not and you know i think the chances of this thing resolving before the legislature comes in in january are zero so the question is, what will Sullivan do in the next legislative session? Does Never he register, mind the does fight over who's a stuff? lobbyist.
2: Let's right. fight over who's a journalist. <laughs> well, there's a,
1: there's an actual you know there's a lot of interesting stuff there. I mean, where is that line exactly? They used well, to they say they should probably
0: deal in facts.
1: They used to say people. <laughs> <laughs> they used to say people that were in print, and then you know we all, you know, a lot of us left print. In um, print on the internet. And then it was people who make or The um, internet. Um, <laughs> yeah, and then it was people who make their living primarily from their writing about these issues and you know but that would if you paid somebody to write a blog that would cover them so you know where's this line they had a similar thing in washington years ago where consumer reports which has a magazine and is also an advocacy organization asked for press credentials and congress has basically said we're not going to decide who gets to sit in the press box we're going to hand that duty to a committee of journalists and so that association of journalists makes the decision now however they do this you know eventually they're going to have to decide who gets into who gets on the committee who gets well who gets well but who gets to who gets to go on the floor of the house who gets to go on the floor of the senate should journalists of any type be allowed on the floor of the house and on the floor of the senate
2: which they currently are
1: which they currently are um and if they are where do you draw the line and you know the legislators kind of have an idea of Or have had an idea of where they want this to be. They want working journalists who are, you know, um, at least putting up the facade of being fair and balanced. But you
2: understand the challenge here. I mean, the challenge here is from the press's perspective, the press may actually take a dim view of some people who assert that they're journalists. Right. But the press has to be very careful not to be openly advocating against those people being credentialed because one upshot may be that the decision is, okay, we're going to get rid of everybody from the
1: floor you know ultimately this comes down to who do the legislators want on the floor you know the only reason the press is on the floor of either house is not because they want is not because the press wants to be there it's because the legislators want the press there they have to decide who they're going to allow in their house and what how they're going to define who gets in and who gets out it's a really nasty thing and it's particularly hard if you're talking about ideological um quote unquote Journalists who are on the side of the people who are doing the vote.
2: Could you define? Do we have? Do we have no, time? actually,
0: the real challenge with this whole thing is that we're totally
1: out we're of time.
2: Out of time. I, w- but, may, but you'll keep. Maybe going at anyway. some <laughs> point in the future, we can talk about how you define ideological in this case. Okay. Because I think that's one of the one of the issues. Should I let
1: somebody from the editorial board of the Dallas Morning News on the floor? Should I let the Texas Observer on the floor? Should I let Breitbart, Texas on the floor? Currently, the Texas circulates. Observer
2: is credentialed to be on the floor, correct? Yes. Right. Currently, the editorial board. You can get on Members the of the editorial sure. board of a newspaper or news organization can get on the floor. Right. Yeah. Currently, Breitbart, Texas, which did not exist during the last legislative session, has not been through the credentialing process, correct?
0: Right. All right, and there you have it. If you have any questions or comments or want to get uh, credentialed to come visit us at the Tribcast, you can we're, email. We're very
2: easy about that, right? <laughs>
0: Uh, Tribcast. You don't even have to be in print. You know, it's great. Tribcast at TexasTribune.org. We'd like to thank Shiny Ribs for doing our music. And on behalf of Morgan, Ross, Evan, and our producer Todd, this is Reeve. Thanks for listening. No, no.
2: I'm not going to talk to you about my fluoride.